The sermon text is John 14, verses 1 to 14, and you can find it on page 586 in the paper Bibles. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you will know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not, do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we are going to continue today in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 14 this morning. And I'm just going to set it up by giving you a little bit of the context before we jump right in it. Um, we didn't actually read the passages right before here in chapter 13. But what's going on, the context is uh, the disciples are pretty anxious here. The disciples are uh, full of fear because Jesus has just told them in the end of chapter 13, that he's about to go away. And to, to figure out how they might be feeling, we don't really have to go much further than this election that we're in right now. Um, I'm sure you know we've got a lot of interesting people running for office right now, a lot of different kinds of personalities. Um, but I think it goes without saying that there's one particular candidate whose, whose supporters are the most passionate, Right? If you, if you are a Bernie Sanders supporter, or maybe you have some friends that are Bernie Sanders supporters, you know that these people are all about their guy. And this week, you may have read the news and seen that he had to let go of a lot of the people in his campaign staff recently. Um, there's some talk that maybe he's starting to change his message a little bit to accept the inevitable that Hillary will probably end up being the likely nominee. But imagine that doesn't happen. Imagine instead there's just this amazing turnaround that begins and Bernie pretty much sweeps the rest of the states and he manages to grab a hold of that nomination and he makes it down to the convention and he stands up at the podium to make his big speech. And when he gets up there, he says, I give up. I quit. Right. Imagine he says he's out. Imagine he makes the announcement that, that he's he's going to step down. How would those supporters feel? How would those the, your, your, your friends, how would you, if you're feeling the burn, how would you feel to know that your candidate has decided not to change things? 
that he's decided not to be the one who's going to bring this political revolution. Well, if you can understand that, I think you could understand maybe one-tenth, one-one-hundredth of how the disciples might be feeling right now, right? Because they're not hoping for free college tuition here, right? They're hoping that that Jesus is going to be the leader to overturn everything in the world. They were hoping that Jesus would be the leader to bring in God's perfect and righteous reign for all eternity. And Jesus tells them he's not going to do it that way. Jesus says, I'm about to leave. And they're filled with anxiety. They're filled with fear. All of a sudden, the future is completely uncertain. They feel abandoned. They feel lost. They don't know what's coming next. Their hearts, it tells us, their hearts are troubled. Can you relate to that? Sure you can, right? We, we all have incredibly troubled hearts. We live in an age where maybe we have less of the, the big physical problems that the world does, but, but our hearts are inordinately troubled. What is it? What's troubling your heart this morning? What is that thing? Well, here in this passage... Jesus offers you a cure. In this passage, John offers us a cure for our troubled hearts. It says at the very beginning, the first lines, it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's what we're dealing with here. That's what this passage is about. This passage is about the kind of belief that remedies a troubled heart. And specifically, here's what it says. The remedy for a troubled heart is to believe that Jesus is the way. The remedy for your troubled heart is to believe Jesus is the way. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the way? We need to break that down if we're going to understand it. If if we have any hope in easing our troubled hearts, we need to figure out what that means. So let's break it down today. Let's break down Jesus as the way into three different categories. First, we need to see that Jesus is the only way. Okay, that's the first thing we're going to look at. Jesus is the only way. Secondly, we need to see that Jesus is the way home. Jesus is the way home. And then finally, I want us to see that Jesus himself is the way. So those are the three points. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the way home. And Jesus himself is the way. Okay, the only way. Jesus is the only way. That's what he says. He says that to comfort his disciples and their troubled hearts. I am the only way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Does that comfort us? You know, I, I would say that there are, probably any, there, are, there are probably few things less comforting to modern ears than to hear Jesus say he's the only way. I, I think that when we hear th- those kind of claims, that, that kind of makes us freak out a little bit. For many people, that's the non-starter thing about Christianity, right? That Jesus would say that he's the only way. There's so many different people, right? There's so many different kinds of beliefs and backgrounds. How could anybody say there's just one way? That doesn't seem right. And if that's not your objection... If you don't hold that particular objection, I know for certain one of your friends does, right? Somebody who you work with, somebody who you know has this exact same problem. So let's think about that. How can somebody 
say Jesus is the only way? Well, before we answer that, we need to understand something about our culture. We need to understand a little bit about the world we live in. Um, The technical term, a technical term for the world we live in is is to say that it is a, a pluralist society. Have you ever heard that word before? Pluralist? Think it through, repeat it in your head. Pluralist. Um, and that's, that's to say our, our culture is not an atheist culture. Some people might make that claim, you know, that we're post-Christian, we're everybody, people don't believe in anything. That's not really true. Statistics show that most people in the world believe something. Most people around us, they believe that there's something, you know, maybe it's some ultimate reality, there's some kind of higher power, Most people believe that there's something bigger than just us. The problem for JP and Roxbury and Boston, the problem for people is not whether or not God exists. The problem is making any kind of definitive claims about him. And so it's common to hear, you probably hear this stuff all the time, right? People say, I I think every religion has some truth in it. You know, what you call heaven, maybe this person over here calls nirvana. When you talk about a heavenly father, I I feel that same thing when I'm in the yoga studio. I I have that same type of experience when I'm climbing a mountain or when I'm out in a a beautiful scenic landscape. I heard about a woman the other day who said, you know, yeah, I think every religion is good. I think all religions have some bits of truth in it, and that's why I pick something from every religion, right? I, I, I build my own because each one of them has good things. People in general around here, they don't have a problem with Christians. They don't have a problem with you having some type of spiritual experience, some kind of spiritual knowledge. They only have a problem when that knowledge leads you to say, well, someone else is wrong. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. Jesus says, other people are wrong. Uh, Margaret Wise Brown wrote Goodnight Moon. Do you guys, I'm sure everyone's read Goodnight Moon. She also wrote a bunch of other books that haven't made it to us in as big of numbers. And one of those is this one called The Wonderful House. And it's a really great book. It's every page, it's like shows a different kind of house and it, like a barn. And it says, you know, who lives in this house? Oh, a cow lives in this house. But as you go, it sh- starts showing this strange house. And it's asking the question, who lives in this house? In the final page of the book, it says, Whose house is this? Is it a giraffe's house or a hat's house or a fish's house or a dog biscuit's house? And it says at the bottom, no, all guesses are wrong. (laughs) It's a wonderful house. (laughs) She says all guesses are wrong. And I think that's exactly, in a sense, what Jesus is saying. All guesses are wrong. There is only one way, and it's through me. Christ's claim, we, you, it's, it says what it says. His claim excludes all other claims to truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. But before you get too upset about that, I want you to th- realize every claim does that. I want you to realize that every religious view is exclusive in itself, even the pluralist view. Well, how is that? How how is that possible? How is the the pluralist view exclusive? Well, just think about it this way. 
If Islam says only our way, not Hinduism. If Hinduism says only our way, not Judaism. If Judaism says only our way, not Buddhism, and so on and so on. If all these religions make exclusive claims, if they all say we are right to the exclusion of other views, and then the pluralist comes along and he says, well, actually, every one of those traditions has some truth in it. Every one of those views have bits of truth in it. They're actually making a religious claim too, aren't they? They're coming along with their own exclusive religious claim. It's just a little bit more veiled. The pluralist says, when, he, when the pluralist comes up and when he says, you're all right, well, what else is he saying? He's also saying, and you're, you're all wrong, right? You're all wrong about your claims. The pluralist's view of the world dies on its own critique, right? You can't tell people their ways aren't true, but that's exactly what it says. It says all your views of the world are untrue. Everyone, all the different views are making exclusive claims about their faith. And I, th- I would suggest to you the, the pluralist view of the world might be the most arrogant of all of them. I'm sure you've heard that illustration before about the blind man and the elephant, right? Have you heard that? Where it says our religious knowledge is like a bunch of blind men who encounter an elephant and they're, they're all feeling different parts. So one person is feeling the trunk and they say, oh, an elephant is like a tree. And one person is feeling the side and like, no, no, an elephant is more like a wall. And the other person is feeling the, the, the trunk and say, oh, no, an elephant is like a snake. You know, so they all are, are, have bits of the truth, but really they, they're all feeling the same creature. And the, the pluralist would say, you know, well, everybody has some pieces of the truth, but really there's, there's one big unified truth that they can't see. Well, to say that, they're also saying what? And I see it, right? I'm the one that sees what nobody else can see. I'm the person whose eyes are open. I see the elephant. And I dismiss your views. I dismiss your claims based on what? You know, my intuition, right? I dismiss it because of how I feel inside about what you said to me. I think that that's a pretty arrogant way to view the world. Every view, then, everyone is an exclusive view. Everyone keeps others out. So then you got to ask a different question, right? If you realize everybody's view is exclusive, what you got to start wondering then is which exclusive view is the right one? Which exclusive view provides the answers? Which exclusive view is the one that actually works? Which exclusive view is the one that, that can heal your troubled hearts? Well, Jesus says, it's this view. It's the view that begins with knowing that he is the way. And it's the only one. But that then brings us to the next thing. He is the way where? He's the way, where, where, what is he the way to? Well, Jesus says in our passage that he is the way home. This is our second point. He is the way home. Now, I mentioned right at the beginning, the disciples are disappointed here. They're disappointed because their hopes for revolution have been shattered. Jesus is a much different kind of leader than they they thought he was going to be. They're filled with anxiety and fear. And how does Jesus respond? When he sees that they're troubled, what does he tell them to calm their hearts? Well, open up your Bibles if you've got them. 
Uh, we're in John chapter 14. And look at me, uh, look at verse 2 with me. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And where I am, you may also be. So as they're worried about this Jesus leaving, he doesn't tell them about his new plans. He doesn't tell them what he's coming to do. But instead, he gives them this promise that he says, I know the way home. And I'm going to bring you home. He says, I know the way home, and I'm going to bring you home with me. Do you ever think about home? Do you ever think about going home? I was talking to a friend the other day, and he was sharing with me that he was, he was traveling. He was outside of the city, um, in, in a different city, and he went for a jog. And he jogged outside of the, the main tourist areas and out into some of the neighborhoods. And as he was jogging, he was surprised to find that these neighborhoods were, were really similar to the ones where he grew up. And as he started running through the streets and looking at the houses, all of a sudden this feeling came over him. Man, I want to go home. And not back to Boston, but he wanted to go to where he grew up, to that place he hadn't been in a really long time. He, he had that longing to just be back where he was from. You ever feel that? Sometimes it comes to you at the weirdest times, right? I, the other day, I, I pulled open one of my daughter's pajama drawers, and like the smell of the washed clothes, I don't know what it was. It was this particular smell. But all of a sudden, I just had this like wave of, of longing, right, to be back where I was safe, where I didn't have troubles, where I, where I could rest. Do you ever get that feeling? When you do, do you ever think it through? Do you, ever, do you ever spend some time contemplating what it would take? What it would take to get back there? And maybe for you it's not your childhood, right? I know some of us didn't have wonderful childhoods. Maybe the thing you find yourself longing for was that great vacation you took one time. Or just some time in your life where you had a lot of friends around you. Some time that was particularly good. Do you ever think about going back to that moment? What it would take to recreate it. It's impossible, right? You can't do it. For a lot of reasons, but mainly because time has moved on. Even if you somehow managed to get back to that place, even if you managed to, to get all the same people around you and put them in the same spot, it wouldn't be the same. Because we've, we've gotten older relationship dynamics have changed, times have changed. No matter how hard you try to get it together, that sense of home, it's gone. We can never get it back. But still, that doesn't stop us from wanting it, does it? That doesn't stop the, the pajama drawer from making us long for it. Why? Why do we feel that way? Well, C.S. Lewis, he has this famous quote where he says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. We feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. And then he goes on to say, If I find in myself a desire 
which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy the desires that I feel, that does not prove that this universe is a fraud. But it proves that probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it. Only to arouse it. Only to suggest the real thing. Only to point us to something that exists beyond this world. So in other words, when Jesus all of a sudden starts talking about going ahead to prepare a place for them, that he's going to his father's house. It's not a non sequitur. Jesus isn't changing the subject. He's not trying to get their mind off of it and put it on something else. No, he's telling you and me and them, he's saying, your hearts are troubled because you are longing for something deeper. To the disciples, he says, you're not just longing for me to conquer You're not just longing for me to make you secure right now and change our politics. What you really are longing for deep down is a spiritual home. You and I are longing for the place where our soul can finally rest. We're longing for the place where we don't have to be troubled. So let me ask again, what what about you? What has, what has your soul troubled this morning? Maybe you're worried about money. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're dealing with, with physical problems. Maybe you're anxious about work, or maybe you're anxious about school. Maybe you're worried about some of these big things, the systemic problems in our world, the violence and, and inequality. Maybe those things are, are what has your soul troubled this morning. Well, what Jesus is trying to tell us, what John wants us to see here, is that all of these troubles are ultimately signposts pointing us to what we really need. What we really need is the security and the belonging that can only be found when we're home with our Heavenly Father. The belonging that we can only find in the house of of our Heavenly Father. The Bible tells us that's actually what we were made for. That our purpose, the reason why we exist, is to glorify God and to enjoy His presence forever. That is the meaning of life. (laughs) To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were made to be in His presence and our hearts will never feel at rest until we're there. We will always be longing. We will always be searching. And so Jesus, in this moment of trouble, in this moment of despair, he says to his disciples, I'm going to go and get that place ready for you. And I'm going to bring you there. Jesus tells us in this verse that he has gone ahead to prepare a place for his people. He tells you here that that home you are always longing for, that experience that always seems out of grasp, exists. The place you're looking for exists, and he's gone ahead to prepare that place for you. And you know, it's worth noting here, in this passage that so many people, they get hung up 
on how exclusive it is. That Jesus says, no one comes except through me. This invitation is anything but exclusive. What does he say about the place? He says, in my Father's house, there are what? Many rooms, right? In my Father's house, there are many rooms. This is a huge invitation. This is an invitation to the world. Second Peter, he tells us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, but he's patient towards the world. The reason why there's been this much time is because God doesn't want any of us to perish, but he wants everyone to reach repentance. There are many rooms in the house. The invitation is open. No one is excluded as long as they know the way. So, what's the way? Well, Jesus tells us that he is the way. Jesus himself is the way. And that is the major point of this passage. Jesus himself is the way. Let's look back at the story. Jesus tells him, I'm going ahead. I'm going to prepare this place for you. And then in verse 4, he says, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way to where you are going. How can we know the way? <laughs> I really love this. Like, he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas is like, nuh-uh. <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really thankful for him because Thomas is never afraid to speak up. Uh, what, what are you like? I, I know what I'm like when I'm listening to a teacher and I don't quite follow what they're saying. You know, I'm the kind of guy who's like, you know, I make the face like I know what's going on, or I'm nodding, like, that's really profound. Yeah. But then afterwards, I got to go to the guy next to me, like, I have no idea what he was talking about. Can you, can you please fill me in? Well, Thomas is not that kind of guy. Thomas, Thomas knows that this is too important to let it slide. It's too important to nod through. Thomas says, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. Maybe I zoned out earlier or something, but I don't know where you're going, and I really would like to. I don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's a bombshell. I want you to see that. That is amazing. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. There is no other claim like that in human history. There is no other claim like that in any philosophy. Jesus says, I am the way. This is the difference between Jesus and every other religious leader, between Jesus and every other philosopher throughout all of history. Lots of religions, right? Lots of religions claim to know the way, right? The way. I once, I took a class in Taoism. The, the word Tao, it means way. The whole point of that religion is to show you the way. I think you can understand why some pluralists see a lot of similarities between different religions, because they are all claiming to show us the way. There's similar thoughts in all of them, right? Be kind to other people. Be sacrificial. Love your neighbors. Respect the world around you, right? You find those ideas in all sorts of religions. And at the beginning of each and every one of them, except Christianity, at the beginning of each and every philosophy, there's a teacher saying, I know the way. Follow me. I know the way. Follow these rules. 
I know the way. Just look at these principles. Do these things. Think this way. Here is the way. Do what I do. Learn what I have learned. But Jesus does not say that. Jesus does not say, I know the way to truth in life. He says, I am the way. He tells the disciples, the reason why he can say, you know the way, even though they're totally in the dark, even though they're totally baffled, is because they know him. That's why they know the way. They know the way because they know him. In other words, Jesus is saying that the way we get our souls back home, the way that we get home, the way that we find rest, is not going to come through simply learning some teaching. It's not going to come through self-discipline. It's not going to come by you teaching yourself to be a good person. Because the requirement of standing in the household of a holy God is nothing short of holiness. The requirement of being in the presence of God is perfection. You should be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what Scripture says. So all those other ways, all those other paths that, that promise life, they have to lead to death. They're dead ends, Scripture says, because we are all desperately lost in our sin. And I think we know that. I think deep down, even if you don't agree with the sentence, I think you know deep down that there is no amount of rule-keeping There's no amount of meditating. There's no amount of self-discipline that will ever ease your guilty conscience. There's no amount of good things that you can do that will ever cover the bad things you've already done. There is no life. This is what Jesus says. There is no life in empty religious practices. They have no power to save us. There is no lasting peace through any of them. There is no lasting peace if you're only looking to yourself, if you're only looking to your own strength, if you're only looking to your own ability to keep the commands or follow the rules. He says there is one solution for your troubled heart this morning. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The only solution is to take your faith off of yourself and put it on another. Jesus. Jesus is the way home. He's more than a teacher who tells us how to get back to God. Scripture tells us He is God. Come down to get us. In the person of Jesus, God took on flesh. He became a man and He took our place. He lived that life that we couldn't live. He he was perfect as His heavenly Father was perfect. He did that for us. And on the cross, He took the penalty that we owed. He paid for our sins in full. And so through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus removed the barrier between us and God. 
through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus has prepared a place for you. Jesus, he did it all. And he's the only one who could. There's no one else who could have possibly done it. So yes, Jesus makes an exclusive claim. He does. There's no way around it. But it's not hateful. It's not out of anger. This is great news. This is wonderful news, guys. This is the best news that has ever been. This is the gospel because it means that it is not up to you. It's up to him. It means that Christianity is not about you getting your act together and following the rules so that one day God will hopefully accept you if you have to stand before him. No, it means that if you look to Jesus for your salvation, then you have a place with the Father. It's finished. It's done. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to have a troubled heart. But guess what? If Jesus is the way, if he really has done it, even if you are anxious today, even if you come here with a troubled heart this morning, there's even more good news because it means your troubled heart's not going to keep you out. Your failure to obey this command isn't enough to keep you out, right? It's not, thou shalt not be anxious. Jesus didn't say that here. He didn't say, thou shalt not be troubled. And that's really good news for me. If you know me, I, I struggle with anxiety sometimes. Maybe, maybe you're like that too. Sometimes you just, you can know all the right things, you can think all the happy thoughts, but sometimes it just comes over you like a wave, doesn't it? It just lays you out. But if Christianity is not about my ability to, to be perfectly free from anxiety and to be totally peaceful on in the inside, if it's really about Jesus, if it's not about learning a philosophy to make me more level-headed, although, you know, the truth is, Christianity can really change the way you feel. You can, you, if you learn the gospel, it really can ease your anxiety. But it's not about that. It's not about a way to find peace. It is about the way to your Savior. It is about a Jesus who has come in the midst of your sin and has scooped you up and has saved you definitively, finally, that you are saved by Jesus. That he comes to us in our weakness and he brings us home. So this message, it's not... Thou shalt not be anxious. But it is, you don't need to be anxious. You have no reason to be anxious. In Christ, your future is not uncertain. Your future is eternal glory in your Father's house. So if you come here this morning and you've got a troubled heart, If you come here this morning and you find yourself wrestling with fear and anxiety, unmet expectations, if you find yourself longing for a home that you can never find, for rest that never lives up to its potential, then I want to invite you to believe. I want to invite you to believe in God. Believe in Christ. I want to invite you to lay down your burdens 
and come to him. I want to invite you to come to this meal. This meal that is just a foretaste of the eternal feast that we have waiting for us with our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning. As a man with a heart that's often troubled, I'm so grateful for the assurance you've given us in Christ that you have gone ahead to prepare a place for us. That it's not about me, it's about you. And so today I pray for every weak and wounded sinner in this room that we would cling to you, that we would grab a hold of you, the only Savior who says he is the way. I pray, God, that you would help us to lay down the things we've been looking to to save us. I pray that you would help us to lay down our, our, our fake and weak and small righteousness and come to you. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you and is, is feeling a stirring in their heart. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to be God. I pray that they might pray along with us, Jesus, save me. Father, we ask in Jesus' name.